want to read yet another passage from John's Gospel. Uh, now from John 17, this is Jesus' prayer, his high priestly prayer. Uh, I will begin in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. O Father, we do thank you that you have given us your Son, to die for us, that You love us with the same love You have for Your Son, and that now You have given us Your Spirit, pouring out Your Spirit upon us through Your Son, that Your Spirit might lead us to the Son who in turn leads us to You. Oh Father, may we learn what it means to worship and adore You, to know You as a Trinity, what it means for our own lives, for our own community. And Father, we pray that through this knowledge of your love, that we might be empowered to love one another, to love the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said in the announcements this morning, on the church's calendar, this is Trinity Sunday. Now, uh, I know Trinity Sunday may not be a, a day that you, uh, you know, grew up celebrating or anything like that. Uh, of course, today it also happens to land on Father's Day, which I think is uh, strangely appropriate in certain ways. And we certainly want to celebrate fatherhood and give thanks to our fathers. Uh, but here this morning in worship, we want to focus especially on what it means for God to be a Trinity. Uh, this is a day when Christians throughout the world focus on what it means to confess and worship God as triune, God as a trinity. Of course, the trinity is woven through our worship every Lord's Day, uh, but this is a day to especially reflect on it. There's probably a lot of you who have never heard uh, a sermon on the trinity, uh, and by the end of this morning, you may know why. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a hard thing to preach on in a lot of ways. It takes us to the very... Uh, depths of uh, the, the, the Christian faith, uh, we have to, in a way, plumb the deepest depths of Scripture in order to uh, grasp what's there uh, about the Trinity. What does it mean for us to, to worship God as a Trinity, to confess that God is a Trinity? As Christians, we worship one God. We are monotheists in that sense. But Christians believe that this one God exists in Three eternal and equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, God is a communion of love, a family of love, or a society of love from all eternity. 
God exists as persons in relationship, persons in love from all eternity. The Trinity means God is love. When we say God is love, that's really what we mean, that the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit from all eternity. And because God is love, because God is a Trinity, we can say that love is the ultimate force in the universe. Because even before there was a universe, even before the beginning, the Father, Son, and Spirit were bound together as one being in love. God is an exchange of love in which each person orbits the others and delights in the others and gives Himself to the others. Let me see if I can help you understand just how basic this is. You know, there was we, we think of God as our Creator. God is the Maker of heaven and earth. That's obviously true. But there was a time when God was not Creator because creation hadn't happened yet. But there was never a time when God was not Father, Son, and Spirit. In the same way, we think of God as our Savior. God is our Redeemer. And yet, God has not always been a Savior because there was a time when there was no one who needed saving. God has not always been Savior. He has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has existed as a society of love from all eternity. And all His works are triune. All God's works are the works of the Father, Son, and Spirit. All three persons of the deity are involved in all that God does. And so when God does create, creation is the work of the Trinity. This is hinted at in Genesis 1, the creation account itself. It becomes clear later on in the rest of Scripture. The Father spoke creation into existence through His Word, who is His eternal Son, carried along, that Word carried along by His mighty breath. Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Word, breath, all engaged in the work of creation. And this is important to understand. It's important to know that creation is the work of the Trinity because it reminds us God didn't create because He was lonely. Because God was never alone. Father, Son, and Spirit have had each other and have enjoyed each other's company from all eternity. So God didn't create in order to shore up some deficiency to meet some need within himself. No, God created as the overflow of triune love. Because the Father, Son, and Spirit sharing this love with one another chose freely to share their love with others, to bring others into the circle of love that Father, Son, and Spirit have shared with one another from all eternity. Creation is an act of triune love. We can say the same about our redemption. Our salvation is a work of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together in order to rescue us, His fallen creatures from sin and death. The Father sending the Son and the Father and Son together sending the Spirit to redeem us, to rescue us. You cannot tell the story of the Gospel without getting into the truth of the Trinity. The Gospel is a triune message. It has a triune shape. Now certainly the Trinity is hard for us because the Trinity is a mystery in many ways. We can't fathom its depths. We can't fully understand or explain how God can be three and one. 
understanding God's inner life is beyond us. Some have said, oh, well, the Trinity, that means that Christianity must be a religion for people who are bad at math. Uh, I don't doubt a lot of Christians are bad at math, uh, but I don't think that's why we have the Trinity or how we got it. Uh, The Trinity is not some kind of brain teaser or intellectual puzzle or philosophical abstraction. The fact that we can't fully understand it should not bother us in the least. Uh, There are all kinds of things about this world we don't understand. But there are a lot of us who flip a light switch expecting light to come on without knowing exactly how electricity works. There are probably a lot of uh, medicines that a lot of us take that, you know, the truth is we don't know exactly how they work. In fact, the truth is there's probably a lot of doctors who don't understand exactly how they work, and yet we keep taking them. The fact that we can't fully understand what it means for God to be a trinity should not put us off. The fact that there is mystery here. In fact, I would say a God small enough to fit inside my head or your head is not really God worthy of worship and adoration. A God small enough for me to understand or for you to understand is not a God who's going to evoke worship or wonder. A God that small is not truly God. Why has God revealed Himself as a Trinity? It's not to confuse us. It's not to stump us. It's not to mystify us. God has revealed Himself as a Trinity so that we might know God as He is. God reveals Himself as a Trinity that we might know Him as the true and living God. The Trinity is revealed in Scripture throughout the the, the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. But it is especially in the events of history, especially in those events recorded for us in the New Testament Scriptures, as the Father sends the Son into the world, and then the Father and Son together send the Spirit into the world. This is how we come most fully to know God as a trinity of persons. I mentioned this in the announcements this morning, but again, I think it helps to think about it this way. All the great events that we celebrate as Christians, you really can't even talk about what they are without talking in a Trinitarian fashion. What do we celebrate at Christmas? It's the Father sending the Son into the world, the Son being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. What do we celebrate at Easter? The Father raising the Son from the grave in the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we celebrate at Pentecost, the Father pouring out the Spirit on the church through His Son. See, the the Trinity is always already there. You you just can't do anything or go anywhere as a Christian without bumping into the Trinity. The Trinity structures and shapes our experience of God. Our creation is the work of the Trinity. Our salvation is has a Trinitarian shape. Our knowledge of God has a Trinitarian structure. Prayer is Trinitarian. You can't pray without being Trinitarian. We usually address our prayers to the Father in the name of the Son. And who here thinks that you pray in your own strength? No, you pray in the strength that the Holy Spirit gives you. The whole Trinity is involved in prayer. Every facet of the Christian life is Trinitarian. Contrary to what some have claimed, the Trinity was not invented by philosophers and the generations after the apostles. 
It is true the word Trinity is not found in, uh, in, in the New Testament. The word is not there. But the doctrine most certainly is. It's not some invention of philosophers or theologians sometime after Jesus and the apostles. Really, all that happened is the, the church fathers, as we call them, the earliest Christians after the apostles, began pulling together various threads in the Scriptures and then used the word Trinity to summarize what Jesus and the apostles taught them about God. Again, contrary to some, the Trinity is eminently practical. Eminently practical. Let me just give you one example connected to current world events. I'm sure you're aware of what's going on over in the Middle East right now, the tragedy and horror of it all. Why is it that Islamic societies always tend to be dictatorships? They always seem to devolve into dictatorships. Why is that true of Islamic societies? Well, I would suggest it's because Allah is not a trinity. And so Allah does not share power. He does not share glory. He is something of a dictator himself. Islamic societies are formed in the image of the Islamic God. The Christian God, the Trinity, on the other hand, does share power. He is a power-sharing, glory-sharing God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same power and same glory with one another and have done so from all eternity. And I would say that our country's heritage is an imperfect but faithful outworking of that Trinitarian conception of God politically. And so in our political system, our civil government, we have three branches of government that share power. In our republican system, rulers even share power with those they rule. That's what it means to have an election. The ruled share in the power they're giving to those who will rule over them. Uh, our founding fathers had a slogan they picked up from the church father Augustine, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Because they had this desire to harmonize and balance the one and the many. And that stems from the Trinity, from centuries of Trinitarian thinking in the West. Now, I'm not saying we've been a perfectly Trinitarian social order by any means. Certainly we haven't. But what I do want you to see is that the Trinity has shaped our politics in profoundly important ways. So don't let anyone try to convince you that the Trinity is not practical or that it makes no difference in how we live. It's not just a word game or a math game. It's who God is, and it makes all the difference in the world. Now, one of the fullest unveilings of the Trinity we have in all of Scripture uh, is found here in the Upper Room Discourse, as it's called, in John uh, chapters 13 through 16, followed by the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. So this is right before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the eve of His crucifixion. And He gathers with His disciples to celebrate a, a sacramental meal in the Upper Room. And in the upper room, especially in chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then as they leave that upper room and go outside and the disciples get to overhear Jesus talking to His Father, the Son talking to His Father, they get to eavesdrop on this inter-Trinitarian conversation. 
We get to piece together these clues about who God is. What we see in these chapters are really three different things. Jesus talks about his relationship to his Father. He talks about the relationship that he and his Father have to the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the relationship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together have with the church, with the disciples, with their people. Now, I'm telling you, those three things are going on there. I'm not really giving you a sermon outline because it's all jumbled together in the discourse as John records it. But those are the kind of relationships, those are the interrelationships I want you to be listening for as we walk our way through this. We can't look at this whole discourse. I just read some bits and pieces of it for us. But I do want you to see some things here. It actually starts out in John chapter 13 with John telling us that Jesus knew He had come from His Father and He knew He was returning to His Father. So as as, as He's gathered with His disciples in the upper room, this is what Jesus is focused on. He has come from His Father. He is returning to His Father. Pick up with chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus says to His disciples, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. He says, you know where I am going and you know the way. But Thomas, speaking for all the disciples, says, basically, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. You think we know, but we don't. Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it might seem like that's kind of cryptic, like Jesus doesn't really answer Thomas's question. But actually, I think he does answer the question. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the Father. What is the way to the Father? Jesus Himself. If I can make this a little bit metaphorical, think about it this way. The Father is the destination. The Father is the goal of the journey. Jesus is the road or the path that leads us there. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. And that prompts another question, this time from Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus talks about seeing. Philip latches on to that and says, okay, this is what we've, you know, we Jews have always wanted this, to see God. So Jesus, show us the Father. This request really is right on par with Moses. You remember back in the book of, of Exodus, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. But it had always been the hope of God's people to see God in His glory, that transforming vision of God in all His glory. In fact, John opens his Gospel talking about just this theme. John says, No one has seen God at any time. And then he says, But the only begotten Son, who is in the heart of the Father, has declared it. And that's John chapter 1, verse 18. That no one has seen the Father. No one has seen the glory of the Father. That's the fundamental problem. That's what we lack. And that's the problem that John's Gospel is addressing. How do we see the Father and His glory? That's the question that John's Gospel is answering for us. See, the glory of God had always been kept invisible. So, for example, Moses made that request to see God's glory, but he only got to see the backside 
of God's glory. He couldn't really see the glory of God face to face. He couldn't behold the glory of God in that way. When God's glory came to dwell in the tabernacle, the house, uh, where God would dwell in the midst of His people, or later in the temple, Moses and the priests, so those who had access to these holy places, Moses and the priests had to evacuate the premises because they could not bear to be in the presence of God's glory. They could not bear to behold it. And indeed, throughout the Old Covenant before Jesus came, this is what we find. God keeps His glory under wraps, as it were. He keeps His glory hidden. His glory is locked up behind curtains and veils. It's out of sight. But now, Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. In other words, by beholding Me, you behold the glory of the invisible God. The glory of the invisible God is made visible in Me. In Jesus, we see God face to face. We see His glory. Jesus has already hinted this several times in John's Gospel. You've got the same thing, for example, in John chapter 12, verse 45. Jesus says, He who beholds Me beholds the One who sent Me. In other words, the glory of God the Father is manifested in Jesus the Son. To see Jesus is to see His Father because Jesus and the Father are one. To see... Now, now I want you to think about this. This is the claim Jesus makes. To see Jesus is to see God. To see Jesus is to see what God is really like. Jesus is God with a human face. Jesus is the glory of God embodied in human form. Just think about that for a minute. It's been said, to say Jesus is God is to make a stunning claim for Jesus. And that's true. That is stunning to say this man is God in the flesh. That is to make a stunning claim for Jesus to say Jesus is God. But here's the thing. It is equally a radical claim about God. Jesus is God, yes. But that means God is Jesus-like. God is like what we see in Jesus. Jesus reveals God. He reveals to us the divine life and character. That's the whole point of the Son's incarnation in human form. To show us God. And so we can point to Jesus and we can say God is like this. And so when we see Jesus having compassion on the multitudes, or when we see Jesus having compassion on the disabled, we can say, that's what God is like. When we see Jesus sparring with the Pharisees and speaking sharp words to the Pharisees, we can say, that's what God is like. When we see Jesus in great humility being born into lowly circumstances in a manger, we can say, that's God. That's what God is like. And of course, this is especially true when Jesus goes to the cross where He offers Himself to His Father on our behalf in an act of self-giving and self-sacrificing love. See, Jesus is going back to the Father, but the way back to the Father is through the cross. And so our way to the Father is going to be through His cross as well. But where do we see God in the life of Jesus most preeminently? The cross shows us the glory of God. 
shows us God is a God who empties Himself. A God who pours Himself out. A God who gives Himself up for the sake of others. His glory is revealed most especially in His humility. His kingship, His lordship is especially revealed in His self-effacing service. See, don't think the Father's one way and Jesus is another. It's easy for us to kind of drive this wedge between the Father and the Son. You know, the, in the Son, we see this self-giving sacrificial love, but where do you think the Son learned it, so to speak? Where did the Son learn this kind of merciful, generous, gracious, humble, other-centered love? He learned it from His Father. He says in John 5, the Son only does what He sees the Father do. Like Father, like Son. The Father sent the Son for this very purpose to reveal Himself to us, to show us His love. Indeed, again and again in John's Gospel, Jesus is saying, the words and works of the Son reveal the Father. And indeed, that's really what Jesus says here in response to Philip in verse 9. He who has seen Me has seen the Father. Why? Why is that? Verse 10, Jesus says, because I am in the Father and the Father is in Me. That is to say, it's like the Father is a house for His Son and the Son is a house for His Father. The Father and the Son are one. They mutually indwell one another. Now, the, the, the Greek technical theological term for this mutual indwelling, the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father, is perichoresis. Perichoresis. I don't give you a lot of Greek words uh, in sermons, but that's one you might want to know. Perichoresis. Uh, Loosely, you, you, you could translate it as something like to dance around. You know, we've got the word choreography for a dance. You choreograph a dance. Well, choresis, that's part of that word. The word peri means around. It means the Father and the Son are engaged in this kind of eternal dance of giving and receiving to one another. They're two persons, but they move as one. They're in lockstep with one another in love through the Spirit. See, the Son came from the Father and is returning to Him. So think about this. When the Son says He's going to prepare a place for the disciples, where is that place? That place is in the Father. Jesus is making space for us, a room for us in the heart of His Father. Jesus is the way to the Father, but He's also already arrived at the Father. And so as soon as you step into the way, you have already arrived at your destination. As soon as you enter into union with Jesus by faith, you already meet the Father face to face because you can't be in Jesus the way without also being in the Father the goal because the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. You could think of the Son as the Father's address. We access the Father through the Son. When we enter into the Son, when we're united to the Son, the way, we find He has already brought us to the Father. So to know the Son is to know the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. So in the Son, we behold the glory of the Father. The invisible is made visible. 
Well, then skip down a little bit. Verses 15 to 18, Jesus brings a third person into the picture. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's not saying if we obey enough, we'll somehow earn something. Rather, what he's showing us here is that the only kind of obedience that's really pleasing to God is an obedience that arises out of love, even as Jesus obeyed his Father out of love. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper who will indwell you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he dwells with you and will be with you. So who is this? helper that Jesus is talking about, this other helper Jesus is talking about, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And notice here that the Father and Son both give us the Spirit, but in unique ways. The Father will pour the Spirit out on us, but through the prayers and mediation of the Son. But I think verse 18 is really the key here. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. So when Jesus leaves the disciples, when he goes away from the disciples in his ascension, they won't be orphaned. Now what is an orphan? An orphan is one who is fatherless. So if they're not going to be orphans, it means they'll be with their father. They're not going to be fatherless. But how will the father be with them? Well, I think the end of verse 18 is really the key. Jesus says, I won't leave you orphans. He says, I will come to you. But Jesus coming to us doesn't explain how we're not going to be left orphans because Jesus isn't the Father. Jesus says, I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. That doesn't explain how we won't be orphans unless when Jesus comes to us, He brings His Father with Him. So how does Jesus come to us? He says, I'm going away from you. That's his ascension. He says, I will come to you so you won't be left orphans. How will he come to us? He'll come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's just said. I'll send you the spirit of truth. And how will having the Son and having the Spirit mean that we won't be orphans? We won't be orphans because when the Son comes to us in the Holy Spirit, they bring the Father with them. It's just a Trinitarian party going on. Uh, You can't have one without the other. When Jesus says, I won't leave you orphans, I'll come to you. This is all in the context of the Father sending the disciples the Spirit through the Son. The Spirit comes to the disciples from the Father through the Son. And when the Spirit comes to indwell us, He brings the Father and Son with Him to indwell us also. Or to turn it around, we can put it this way, by giving us the Spirit, the Father and Son really are giving us themselves. The Father and Son, by giving us the Spirit, are are really enabling us to share in the love and delight they have had in each other for all eternity. They're sharing that with us. The Father and Son give themselves to us. They, They give us their love by giving us the Holy Spirit. And really, that's where Jesus goes with this. And verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him to make our home in him. God gives God to us, so we become a home for God. God the Father 
gives us God the Holy Spirit through God the Son. And in this way, all three persons of the deity come to dwell in us and make their home in us. The Spirit abides in us and makes the Father and Son present to us. So hear this. The Trinity dwells in each one of us. You are a home for the Trinity. And not only that, but you dwell in the Trinity. Because if you're in Jesus, Jesus is in the Father. And so you're in the Father as well. And Jesus is in the Father by the Holy Spirit. And you're in the Spirit as well. You dwell in the Trinity. The Trinity dwells in you. You don't just have a piece of God in you. You've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in you. Jesus comes to dwell in us by His Spirit and He brings the Father along. We dwell where Jesus dwells and He dwells in the Father and so we do as well. And again, I think this fits perfectly with what Jesus goes on to describe about the ministry of the Spirit to us and in us. See, what exactly does the Spirit do when He comes into our lives? Well, Jesus answers that question progressively more and more as you go through this discourse. Chapter 14, verse 26. The Spirit will remind you of Jesus' words. But we know those words came from the Father, so they're really also the Father's words. So the Spirit brings to to remembrance the Son's words, which are also the Father's words. Fifteen, Chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. The Spirit will come from the Father and bear witness to the Son. Again, it's all three persons. Working together. Chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It is advantageous for the Son to go away because then the Helper, the Spirit, will come. Well, why would Jesus say, It's better for me to go away because then the Spirit will come unless the Spirit brings Jesus back with him and also brings the Father with him? That's the only way it can be better to have the Spirit than to have the Son is if when the Spirit comes, He brings the Son back and the Son brings the Father too. That's the only way it can really be advantageous. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. The Spirit of truth will come to guide us into the truth. And of course, Jesus has already said, I am the truth in chapter 14, verse 6. And so the Spirit of truth guides us to the truth who is Jesus. And Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He guides us to the Father. So, this is what you have. The Father pours out the Son, pours out the Spirit through the Son on us. The Spirit guides us to the Son, who in turn leads us to the Father. And so you see how this Trinitarian circle is complete. Father, Son, and Spirit were giving to one another from all eternity. What's different now is we have been brought into that giving and receiving, that circle of love that Father, Son, and Spirit have shared from all eternity. Jesus goes on in John 16. He says, The Holy Spirit will not speak on His own. Whatever He hears, He will speak. He will take what is Mine and give it to you. It's like Father, like Son, like Spirit. The Son gets His words from the Father. The Spirit gets His words from the Son. Again, you see how this Trinitarian loop, it's, just, it's, a, it's an eternal loop that we've now been brought into. The Spirit comes that we might know the Son just as the Son came that we might know 
the Father. No person of the Trinity focuses on himself. Each person of the Trinity points us to another. Now, what does all this mean? I know this, you know, this is this is complicated stuff, not the normal Sunday morning kind of stuff you want to do. But I want you to think about it this way. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God is eternal life. We have eternal life in knowing God. The only way to know God is to share in some way in God's knowledge of Himself. And that's what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. Through the Spirit, we are brought to the Son so that through the Son, we can be brought to the Father. The Son gave us the Spirit to bring us to Himself, even as the Father gave us the Son to bring us to Himself. And so in this way, we come to share in the love that the Father and the Son have for one another in the Spirit. God is a communion of love. Three persons eternally giving to and receiving from one another. That's perichoresis. They're mutual indwelling love. We have now been invited into the dance to share in this perichoresis. We've been brought into this dance of love and dance of joy. This ring of love and ring of joy. This circle of communion. We've been invited into the divine society. And so the same love the persons of the Trinity have for one another, they now have for us. This is what Jesus says in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. In the same love that the Father has for the Son, that's the love the Son has for us. And that's because the Son came to make known the Father's love. Indeed, this is why the Father sent the Son to make Himself known, to make His love known. This kind of knowing is not a matter of downloading information. It's not a matter of data transfer. No, it's a matter of personally and richly knowing the other. And so what this means is the same love and delight that the Father has had in the Son from all eternity. That same love and delight is now to be in us. The Father wanted to share His Son with us so that He might share Himself with us. And of course the Spirit comes to share what belongs to the Son. And so again, you see how we get Father, Son, and Spirit all together. Now let's begin to wrap this up. Jesus moves from this upper room discourse, which is really a discourse about the Trinity as much as anything, into what is known as His high priestly prayer. This prayer He offers in chapter 17. Why is it called the high priestly prayer? It's called the high priestly prayer because it alludes to the, the work of the priests of Israel in the temple. The priests would enter into God's presence to minister on behalf of of the people. That's what it meant to be a priest, to minister in God's presence on behalf of others. What this high priestly prayer does in John 17 is it pulls back the curtain 
And it allows us to see into the most holy place, to see a glimpse of the glory of God. Yes, the sacrifice Jesus makes, that will be on the cross that is to come. But here, through His intercession, through His conversation with the Father, we learn what that sacrifice on the cross means, what it will accomplish. In the Old Testament, the high priest would wear over his heart a golden ephod, some kind of chest piece, with twelve jewels, each with a name of one of the twelve tribes of Israel inscribed on it. So it is as though the high priest would enter into the presence of God with the people of God on his heart. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking His people with Him to His Father in prayer. He says in verse 20, I pray not just for these apostles gathered here, but for those who will believe in Me through their message. This prayer is a prayer on behalf of all of His people. He's bringing all of His people with Him into the presence of His Father. And when He prays, what does He pray for? Well, really two things emerge. He prays for our unity, our harmony. He prays for our community. That our community in the church would be a trinity on earth, as it were. A reflection of who God is. We are to image the triune God in our unity with one another. That's really what you see in verses 21 to 23. He prays that we would be one even as the Father and Son are one. That there would be complete unity amongst us. And when there is this complete unity in this way, the same glory that the Father has given to the Son will be given to us. Because unity in love is glorious. And so what is Jesus praying for here? He's praying for unity and diversity amongst His disciples. That our unity and diversity would be patterned after the Trinity. We see from this prayer, we're called to share in the self-giving love of the Trinity in the way we treat one another, the way we serve one another, the way we regard others in the church better than ourselves, the way we one another one another. We're to give the world a glimpse of the oneness of the Father and Son. And this is glory. Jesus says in His prayer, this is glory. It's glory to live as God lives. To live as God lives is glorious. We become human replicas of the divine when we live this way. When we love one another and live as one. The many members of the community dancing together, functioning together in this way. But that's not the end of it. Jesus goes on to pray for our mission to the world as well. The unity is so that the world might believe. It's not just unity for its own sake, so we can have warm fuzzies as we serve one another. It is so that the world might be transformed. See, the church, the family of God, by our very existence and by our way of life, is to make God known. Even as the Father sent the Son to make His love known, the Son sends us to make His love known. Our mission in the world is the outworking of love. It's our way of sharing in the shape of God's own life. This generous, overflowing, outflowing, outgoing life of love that God Himself has been living from all eternity. This is the Trinity way. The Trinity's way of life is to become our 
way of life also. So that in our lives we are reflecting the glory of triune love to one another and to the world around us. St. Francis of Assisi once asked two key questions on which everything else depends. He said, My dearest God, who are you and who am I? Oh dear God, who are you? And in light of that, who am I? And John's Gospel answers those questions for us. Who is God? God is a trinity in which the Father in love sends the Son to the cross in love to offer Himself through the Spirit back to the Father on our behalf. That's who God is. Who am I? I am one of those people for whom the Father sent the Son to the cross to offer Himself through the Spirit. That my sins might be forgiven. That I might be brought into this ring of love and joy that is the Trinity. The great Puritan theologian John Owen argued that the greatest unkindness we can ever do to God that is the biggest slap in the face we can ever give God is simply to refuse to believe that He loves you. The greatest unkindness you can do to God is to refuse to believe that He loves you. Owen said nothing troubles or burdens God more than that. That kind of unbelief. God loves us. The triune God loves us. Father, Son, and Spirit love us and have come to dwell in us. The goal of history is perichoresis. Not the perichoresis, the the mutual indwelling of Father, Son, and Spirit in one another. That's been happening from all eternity before history even began. No, the goal of history is the perichoresis of God and His people. That God would dwell in us, that we would dwell in Him. God wants us as His dance partner. He wants to dance in love and joy with us for all eternity. The perichoresis of Father, Son, and Spirit now includes us. We've been caught up into the love the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. And so we share in God's own life through the Holy Spirit. God has given Himself to you. He has poured out Himself for you. Now give yourself to Him in love. Pour out yourself for Him in love. Receive His love and give Him your love in return. That is good. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for giving us Your Son. For we know that in seeing the Son, we see You. We see Your love. We see Your glory. Oh, Father, may our community together reflect the oneness that You have with Your Son in the Spirit that the world might come to know that Jesus is the One You sent to be the Savior and King of the world. This is our prayer in His name. Amen.